0: Good morning. Uh, I'm going to warn you ahead of time uh, that I am uh, pretty under it, and so if I sound like a struggling teenager, uh, that's why. All right. As I said, we are uh, in our series in First Corinthians, a letter written from a man named Paul. It's uh, this five-year-old church in the city of Corinth, and in chapter 15, Paul starts addressing uh, a group of men and women in the church who who were doubting, who didn't believe in the resurrection, and where he began. He began by addressing their questions. We said two weeks ago that he wasn't, wasn't afraid of their intellectual questions, and so he addressed it, and he gave evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And then he moved on to the resurrection in general, and this week um, he's going to speak about our physical resurrection, but he's going to do so by addressing a question that they have. And in addressing it, uh, he's going to speak to one of, one of the many fundamental needs that you and I share. And so I want to frame that need by telling you a story. It's a story of the worst day of my life. That is true. This is the worst day I've ever had. It was January. My wife and I were living in Dallas. My wife was pregnant with our first child. We had just come to Houston for the holidays where we waited and then we did a big family party to let our family know that uh, Amanda was pregnant It was a pretty exciting time in the Barker home. And then we got back to Dallas, uh, and my wife had a a routine weight check at Baylor Hospital. Me being the gym rat, obviously, that I am, my gym was on the first floor of Baylor Hospital, and so I said, hey babe, can I uh, go play racquetball with a friend? She said, yeah, just a weight check, no big deal. Sure. So I went, I played racquetball. Middle of the game, I turn around, and through the clear wall, I see my wife with tears just pouring down her face. And in a moment, I knew. I knew. I, I knew what happened. I knew I should have been up there with her when she got the news that we lost our child. In the days and the weeks to come, the months to come, the years I've, I've learned to come, uh, there were emotions that I'd never experienced before. There was depths of pain that I never knew could exist. And let me tell you what I did not need. I did not need a shallow or a surface optimism. I did not need life's pithy or pat answers. I needed hope. Like genuine, real, gut level hope. Not a generic hope, not I hope I eat Mexican food for dinner kind of hope, but the kind of hope that allowed me to be fiercely realistic about life. Fiercely honest about the pain that I felt. Fiercely honest about all that was broken in that moment in the world without drowning under it. I needed a hope that um, longs for tomorrow and gives what Tim Keller calls a stubborn buoyancy. Just a stubborn buoyancy. Honest, I'm in the water, the water's coming over, but I'm not drowning. Stubborn buoyancy. What I needed was the ability to be both realistic and optimistic at the same time. Now, uh, maybe it's not uh, miscarriage for you. Uh, maybe it's lost a job and can't find one. Maybe it's addiction just doesn't seem to go away. Maybe it's a uh, relationship with the one I thought I was going to marry ended. They gave me the ring back. I still don't find it very funny. I don't find that to be a joke. It's painful. Maybe my marriage is just on the rocks and it seems like there is no way around and I need the chance, the ability, the resources to be both realistic about my life and optimistic at the same time. Here's what Paul is going to do in our text today. He is going to address where the resource comes from to be both realistic, honest, and optimistic at the same time. He's going to do it through the resurrection, by addressing their question. And so let's go verse 25. And by that, I mean 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So here's Paul anticipating their question. Here's Paul anticipating their question. Okay, if the resurrection is true, if it does happen, if it is to come, what's it like? What's it like? What, What kind of body do we have? How does this work? If it's true, how does it work? And Paul's going to begin his answer by giving two illustrations. Two illustrations. What we're going to do is we're going to take an aerial view of the illustrations because in taking an aerial view, we don't get lost in the weeds of it and we see the point he's making, which I think is a fairly profound point. And so let's go first illustration, verse 36. "'You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies.'" And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Okay, here's part A of the first illustration. He takes um, sowing seed, putting seed in the ground, something that would have been a common um, knowledge illustration, first century. and says you put it in the ground, a seed, and it comes out a plant, a plant comes out, and it's no longer a seed. The seed has to die, so the plant can be raised. Let's keep reading. For not all flesh is the same. It's verse 39. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory for the sun and another glory for the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. Okay, this is part B of the first illustration. Not, not all bodies are the same. There's, there's, there's bodies for people and there's bodies for animals. Just like that, there are earthly bodies and there are heavenly bodies and while both are glorious, the glory is not the same. The brightness of the sun the brightness of the sun is greater than the brightness of the moon. And some stars are brighter than others. They are more majestic than other stars. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection. Key, key phrase in this illustration. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So here's Paul's point. Seeds, bodies, these are pictures. These are illustrations of the resurrection. It goes in the ground, perishable decaying, comes out of the ground, imperishable decaying goes into the ground natural, comes out of the ground spiritual. And so what is Paul saying? And if we stay aerial, stay aerial of the illustration, we don't get too much into the weeds of it. Here's what we see. We say, he's saying, look around at the world. Look look at the world. It's telling the story of the illustration. It's not telling the story of the illustration. It's telling the story of the resurrection. Look around at the world. The world is telling the story of... The resurrection, the world itself is a living illustration of the resurrection. So that's illustration one, seeds and bodies, the physical world as a picture of a theological and very practical reality of the resurrection that is to come. Now, illustration two, verse 45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man from heaven. And so the first Adam, that's a reference to Adam and Eve. And Adam created from the earth, from the dust. And now the last Adam, which is a reference to Christ, came from heaven. So the first Adam from the dust, the last Adam. Christ from the Father, from heaven, and he became a life-giving spirit. That's a reference to the resurrection, the event of the resurrection. Became a life-giving spirit through the resurrection that in Christ all will be made alive. Now, keep reading, still in illustration two. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born, have borne the image of the man of dust, we also we also bear the image of the man of heaven. here's what Paul is saying, and I'm ripping this from a commentator, Gordon Fee, that we've referenced a thousand times in this series, and it's so helpful. That Adam's offspring are as he is. As Adam died, so we, the offspring of Adam, sow bodies into the ground that are decaying and perishable but but those in Christ those who believe in Christ those who by faith or by grace through faith are in Christ also share in the likeness of the man from heaven also share in the likeness of Christ that as he goes we go as Adam went we went and the resurrection guarantees that we will share in the heavenly body as well here's what he's saying that in Christ we are all like Adam and all like Christ our bodies are going both of the way of Adam to the ground and the way of Christ, the resurrection. Simultaneously at the same time. So, staying Ariel, what did Paul just do with the second illustration? Here's what he said. Look at the Bible. It tells a story of the resurrection. You see, um, it, this is what Paul did in his two illustrations. So they have the question, what will it be like? What will it be like If the resurrection is true, if this is true that Jesus actually left the grave and there is a future resurrection to come for us, what will it be like? And Paul's answer was, look. Look anywhere and everywhere. Illustration one, look at the world. It tells a story of the resurrection. Illustration two, look at the Bible. It tells the story of the resurrection. Everywhere you look, if you will see it, is the story of the resurrection rection, Francis Schaeffer, who was this pastor theologian, uh, not not too long ago, passed away, but you know, uh, he had this saying, I I tried to find where it was, I couldn't find it. I remember highlighting it in his systematic, it doesn't matter, but he said this, creation is as much God's book as the Bible is. Creation is as much God's book as the Bible is. And Paul is making that point that the world, the Bible, it all comes from God. God is the one who created the world. God is the one who inspired the Bible. It is all revealing God and what he is doing. It includes, it includes if you will see it, the future reality of the resurrection. And Jesus left the grave and therefore you will too. And so the answer to their question is, it's everywhere. The answer to your question is everywhere. And now Paul is gonna move from illustration down from Ariel into the weeds with his answer and so we're going to go with him. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God here to think eternal life in the presence of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Flesh and blood this is speaking of our bodies in their present reality, the present decaying reality, present condition marked by death, that our bodies are physically falling apart. Did you know um, that if you are 24 or older, at the age of 24, your brain starts to age? By the age of 40, you lose 10,000 neurons a day. I'm 40. I'm literally getting dumber as I give this sermon. At the age of 40, your heart starts to decline, and so the organ keeping me alive started going downhill January 5th of this year. I know, it's unfortunate. But the word Paul uses to describe this physical decay is actually a pretty aggressive term. The word perishable, it's the same word that would have been used to describe a miscarriage or an abortion. It's a violent decay that leads to death, is his point. This world, this life today, it's marked by, and you, can, you, don't, you don't have to look at the Bible to know this, although it's a good, good place to discover it. You can simply watch the news. You, you can read a news feed on any platform you want to, and you will know that this world is marked by death and decay, and it's usually pretty violent, And his question, remembering their question, what will it be like? Here's Paul's answer. Nothing like this. Nothing like this. Absolutely nothing like this. In that day, what will it be like? What kind of bodies will they have? Bodies that do not decay. There will be no miscarriage, there will be no death, there will be no cancer, there will be no heart attack, there will be no galas for the med center to raise money because the med center is not needed anymore. That's what it'll be like. That's the day that is coming. They will be a thing of the past. Let's keep reading. Decay will be a thing of the past, verse 51. And listen, I I know in this room uh, looking around, we span the ages probably from a uh, uh, teenager up through our 60s. I, I'm right in the middle of it. I, I, am, I am more aware today of the decay that I, than I was, the nearing of death than I was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, I was more aware of it than I was 10 years before that. And I assume 10 years from now, I'll be more aware of it then. And then 10 years after that, I'll be more aware of it then. There is um, th- this text, this sermon. Th- the truth is that uh, when I was a fairly new Christian at, at 22, I-, I thought of these as true realities, but for another generation. I don't anymore. And I wish I hadn't then. I-, I wish I had soaked in more of the reality of resurrection to come when I was 22. It would have. It would have created a little bit more buoyancy in my life for the pain that was to come between then and now. Let's keep reading though. Verse 51, I tell you, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. So let me tell you a mystery. A mystery. mystery is at the heart of the story of redemption, if you, we see this in other places in the scriptures. that is beyond our ability to simply comprehend, and mystery is at the core of our faith. If you are curious about Christianity, discussing the resurrection is a great place uh, to do so, but you need to know that mystery is at the heart of our faith. We do not understand everything about our faith, which is, we believe, partly how we know it came from God, and it's not a human invention. If it's a human invention, then it's also culturally dev- derived and there is one culture who would be able to understand everything about it, but if it came from God, then none of us will ever be able to understand fully everything about our faith. We think it's evidence for the truth of Christianity. Some mystery sits at the heart of what we believe. And what's the mystery here? That as, at the resurrection, at the resurrection, living and the dead will be changed. Changed. Perishable will become imperishable. In that moment, there will be a trumpet blaring. I don't know uh, what this trumpet will actually sound like. I, I, I don't know necessarily. I assume it's speaking literally here, but I do know this, that trumpet blaring is a theological reality out of the Old Testament that Paul is using here to make a point. That in the Old Testament, trumpets were the sound of the last battle cry, Jeremiah 51, to warn of approaching day of judgment, Joel 2, to announce the coming of the Lord, Zechariah 9, to summon the people of God from the four corners of the earth, Isaiah 27. The point here is that when the trumpet blares, the age of redemptive history, the, a, this age will have come to an end and the age to come will have fully broken in. The day that we await will fully and finally be here. It'll be here. And when it breaks in, verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. When the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your Sting. When the last trumpet sounds and eternity breaks in, here will be the taunt. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is it? Where is it? But to understand Paul and his realism and optimism merged together at the same time, we have to see this phrase. Then shall come to pass. Then shall come to pass. Then shall come that. So that's a future tense, a future reality. The present tense, swallowing a death, is a future reality. This is a future, present reality. Which is why death has a present sting, but not an eternal one. This is why funerals are painful. It's why when we go to a funeral, we shouldn't try to soften the blow of the pain of death by calling it something other than a funeral. It's painful. The tears are real. The tears should be cried because death is the last enemy that one day will be conquered. The sting will go away. The sting is still here. It is a future, present reality. But there's something interesting in this text. There's something fascinating in this text. O death, where is your victory? Death swallowed up in victory, O oh, death, where is your sting? Pa- Paul cites two Old Testament texts here: uh, Isaiah 25, Hosea 13. Neither one of them have the word victory in it. Paul inserts the word victory into his quoting citation of the Old Testament. Why? Why would he do that? It's a great question. Let's keep reading. The sting of this, verse 56. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why include victory here? Why insert victory into his quoting? Because sin and its poisonous effects have overcome and overpowered every man, woman, and child on this earth except for one. Except for one. Because Jesus was victorious over the poisonous effect of sin and death when he left the grave. Death is swallowed up in victory when Jesus exited the tomb. And see, here's Paul's realism and optimism coming together in the gospel of Jesus. Sin and its effects are so serious that Jesus had to die. But Jesus' resurrection says the sin and its effects are temporary. Temporary. Jesus' death says that sin and its effects are serious and deadly. Jesus' resurrection says sin and its effects are temporary, which means we don't have to avoid the pain of death. We don't have to pretend like it's not real, and we don't have to be overcome by fear of it. We can be both realistic about life and the state of the world and optimistic about our future at the same time because the sting of death is serious because the sting of death is temporary. That's why. But now he's going to do something in verse 58. Now in verse 58, he's, he's going to add this tag on that seems, if you just read it in isolation, it seems a bit like standard kind of Pauline language for the church. But in context of chapter 15, in context of the letter, I think it is nothing short of resurrection applied. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, my beloved brothers, let me pause there. I, I won't go Greek nerd on you here for a minute, but, but the way that he writes beloved brothers, it's, it's the most emotive, affectionate way that you could write it. It's not a standard um, kind of case study. It's, the, it's my, my beloved brothers. My beloved brothers. Oh, the ones that I love, my beloved brothers. And listen, if if you have ever read the letter of 1 Corinthians or you've been here throughout our series, you know this church is as off the rails as a church can get. As off the rails as a church can get. Divided, fighting, suing one another. And he uses the most affectionate way he can to say, My beloved brothers. What what does that mean? That means in the same way that he looks back to the resurrection of Jesus to this dysfunctional church in Corinth. And with affection, says, my beloved brothers, I believe that those are Christ's words for you, that if your life looks more like the church in Corinth, that Paul would look back to the resurrection of Christ and say, with the affection of Christ for you, my beloved brother, my beloved sister. Let's keep reading. My beloved brothers, be steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says, Be steadfast. Be steadfast. Do you notice that it did not say remain? It just didn't say remain, it said be. Be steadfast. There are plenty of places in the New Testament that Paul says remain, but this is not one of them. Why? Because Paul is realistic about where they are, who they are, and yet at the same time optimistic about who they might be and become. And then he said, "Abound in the work of the Lord; it's not in vain." I I find this incredibly amazing. If if the church in Corinth were a church down the street, they're a part of Acts twenty nine. We're a part of Acts twenty nine. If they were an Acts twenty nine church in Houston, there's a good chance a few of us would come together. And we'd go over to the, the, the people leading the church, and we'd say, hey, listen, you, you guys probably need to close your doors. Like, y'all, y'all are just so far off the rails that it's probably time to shut this thing down. Not Paul. He doesn't say close your doors. He says, abound in the work of the Lord. Your work is not in vain. Then in the context of a letter that crescendos with the resurrection, this is Paul's resurrection applied to the church. When you read the letter, you know that Paul's incredibly realistic about who they are. There was one point in this letter where Paul actually said it to them, you're living in a way that even the pagans wouldn't tolerate. Even, even like the worst of the worst in our city would not tolerate what you are doing. And yet he looks back through the resurrection with an affectionate optimism for them. Paul is both realistic and optimistic at the same time. Time And I think this brings the kind of hope that we need. I think Paul's application of the resurrection of Jesus to the church in Corinth brings the kind of like gut-level, life-changing hope that we need, hope for a future day when death is no more, and hope for the present. It means, it means that we can look at our lives and we can be honest about who we are and where we are, not have to pretend that we're something that we're not, and still be optimistic for tomorrow. It means that we don't have to put on an image, pretend to be better off than we are. We can be realistic and hopeful and optimistic for tomorrow. If your marriage is struggling, you can be honest honest and optimistic at the same time. If you are overcome with loneliness, single or married, overcome with loneliness. You can be both honest and optimistic at the same time. We can look at our parishes and our friendships, and we can be honest and optimistic at the same time. We can look at these smaller expressions, what we call the church living as a family, and we can say, you know what? They're not perfect. They're not even close to perfect, and yet we can still be optimistic for what they might become tomorrow. We can look at our church we can look around the room at one another and we can be honest and optimistic at the same time. We, we can look around and go, you know what, we're not where we want to be, I'm not where I want to be, they're not where I want us to be, and yet we can still be optimistic at the same time. And we can be steadfast and immovable where we are not because Jesus is alive. We can become steadfast and immovable. And we can get to work with the work of the Lord perfectly, no, not even close. In vain, not even close. We, we, we think this text is saying because of the resurrection, because of what life will be like tomorrow, we have something to do today. We can get to work doing the work of the Lord. So here's what Paul did, and I think he did it brilliantly. He took their question. If the resurrection happens, what will it be like And he answered and he said, it will be nothing like this. There's a day coming that will be nothing like today. No decay, no heartache, no pain, no, you fill in the blank. Because that day is coming. You can apply that day to today and be both realistic about you, realistic and honest about our own lives, and still optimistic for what our lives might be and become tomorrow, and we can do it at the same time. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Because he's alive, we can have the kind of stubborn buoyancy that hope-filled, hope-fueled by the resurrection gives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this morning. We thank you for um, this spirit-inspired text. The Spirit-inspired text about the resurrection of your son and the effect of his resurrection on our future resurrection and what that day will be like. I pray that uh, the men and women in this room are, that they would know that in the same way that Paul takes the resurrection, applies the resurrection and says you can be honest and optimistic at the same time, that we can look at our own lives and know that it's okay to be honest and optimistic at the same time. Uh, we, d- decay is going to mark all aspects of our life today, but it won't forever. The sting of death is real today, but it won't be forever. I pray that we would live the resurrection honest and optimistic. I ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.